We thank you once more, gracious Lord, for permitting us to think about your word. What you have spoken by the Spirit through the narrator of First and Second Samuel, even to us. You spoke to David, and your hand was upon his story. You have spoken to us in these last days by the greater David, and his hand is upon our story. Let us see by your goodness the interface between our own life and the text, that our life might be conformed to that arena to which David himself was conformed. Glories of your heavenly kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The inspired narrator of the life of David has penned a verbal portrait of this shepherd boy, become king-elect as an upward narrative spiral. An upward narrative spiral which contrasts David's life with the downward narrative spiral that has gripped King Saul. Our author has selected his narratives consistent with these contrastive portraits. And at the root of the upward Davidic spiral is God's presence. God's presence with David, even as at the root of the downward Saul-eyed spiral is God's absence from Saul. From 1 Samuel 16 to our present narrative, our narrator unfolds the indelible interface between David's life and the life of the Lord God. Again, our narrative is the story of the intersection of the vertical and the horizontal dimensions. The life of David of Bethlehem in union with the life of the Lord God, God of heaven and earth. God the Lord enters into David's heart as he enters into David's life, even as he conforms David's life to the arena of heaven, to God's own arena to the eschatological arena. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is why I have taken a positive view of David's narrative incidents to this point. 
not with any Pollyanna camera lens, as if David is sinless. His latent sinfulness, his native Adamic depravity is not featured by our narrator in the portrait of his anointing, the portrait of his playing the lyre before Saul, the portrait of his role vis-a-vis Goliath in the space in between, the portrait of his life as spared from Saul's spear by Jonathan's intercession, by Michael's intervention, by Ahimelech's provision, even Achish's intermediate role in driving the shrewd play-acting David away from Gath. As the Psalms associated with these incidents make clear, David's life is renewed, refreshed, rejoices in God's life towards him, God's life given to him, God's life revealed to him, and in him, God's life present with him. The fugitive David is on the run with God's life surging through him, with God's presence going with him and before him, with God's grace working its way out of his heart, a heart into which that grace has been supernaturally poured. We must not dissect the story of David so as to lose sight of the thread, the woven, seamless, narrative thread which traces the life of God the Lord in the life of God's own heart traces that heart mirroring God's heart from one incident to another and another and yet another. Our narrator is telling the story for our edification so that our story may be identified with David's story so that our life may be seen as like unto David's life in union with his Lord. So, too, our life in union with his Lord. So that our life may be transformed by the life of David's eschatological Lord, our Lord and Savior, our very life, God's very Son, Jesus Christ. 
The slaughter of the priests at Nob <clears throat> draws others into David's circle, tragically. Tragically here, <clears throat> as Robert suggested last week, the enmity of the royal paranoid opposed to the protological David is recapitulated in the enmity of the royal paranoid opposed to the eschatological David. Saul's bloodlust is recapitulated in the bloodlust of Herod the Great. And I thank Robert for prodding me on the point. Both are monsters slaughtering innocent life for fear of displacement, for fear of displacement and retaliation. Retaliation for being outfoxed by those who would preserve life, those who do not destroy innocent life. This contrast, this opposite vector spiral between life preserver and life destroyer continues to unfold even as David's story unfolds in chapters 23 and 24. Let's begin our study of chapter 23 this evening with an observation on the light verter which is found in these verses. As you skimmed the chapter or as you read it, <clears throat> is there any particular term or phrase that jumped out at you because of its use repeatedly? Please notice the word hand. Nine times in this chapter, the key word or the leading word of the narrator is the word hand. In verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, verse 11, verse 12, verse 14. Verse 16, if you note the margin, the word encouraged is idiomatically in the hand. Verse 17 and verse 20. In whose hand will David end up? Our narrator keeps us in suspense as David evades the hands opposed to him. The Philistines do not evade David's hand in verse 4, and his slaughter of the Philistines may raise the question of moral equivalence. Is David like Doeg? Is the slaughter of the Philistines like the slaughter of the priests at Nob? 
Or is it moral equivalence? The moral or ethical character of these contrastive figures apparent in their behavior. No, our narrator is not signaling moral equivalence. He is signaling moral antithesis. One destroys innocent life. The other delivers innocent life by destroying the wicked destroyers. One is wicked, the other righteous. We must not confuse David's character with Doeg's. Our narrator does not, nor does he want us, the reader, to so confuse them. The element of contrast, contrastive moral character, contrastive ethical behavior is applied by our narrator, David, unlike Doeg. Now let's review the geography of David's movements in this chapter next. Where is David as this chapter opens? You've lost track of him already. In chapter 22, verse 5, he is in the forest of Hereth. At least that is the last location which our narrator has given us for David and his band. And so I presume that in terms of his narrative continuity, David is still geographically in the forest of Hereth, which is an unknown, still unknown geographical location, probably somewhere in the wilderness of Judah. Now, where is David headed as this chapter opens? Nice try at pronunciation. The proper Hebrew pronunciation is Ki'ila. Ki'ila. All right, that may be a little hard for an Anglo-Saxon or an Western uh, person to get uh, down, but you have to get a little Hebrew Semitism uh, into your uh, uh, pronunciation and the rhythm of your speech. Ki'ila is the name of the town. And if you see from your map in your handout, it is located just south of the cave at Adullam. Now, the first five verses of this chapter bring us full circle. The Philistines fight at Keilah, verse 1. David fights Philistines at Keilah, verse 5. Verses 1 to 5 form a narrative unit. 
notice how that five-verse structure is reinforced by our narrator. In verse 1, you notice the word behold, which is duplicated in verse 3. Behold once again. In verse 2, the phrase inquired of the Lord, duplicated in verse 4, inquired of the Lord. In verse 2, the word deliver, and in verse 5, the word delivered. The duplications are intentional double assurances. They are reinforced doublets assuring that David is the Lord's champion, even on the run, even as a fugitive and an outcast. David is the Lord's appointed savior. As the Hebrew word for deliver in verse 2 and verse 5 suggests. The Hebrew word here is related to the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua, which in Greek is Jesus, which in English is art, Savior, Matthew 1, 21. You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. Hebrew Joshua, translated in Greek, is Jesus or Jesus. Translated into English is Savior. David is the deliverer, the Savior in this narrative unit. And you will notice yet one additional pattern of duplication. In verse 1, the sequence Philistines and Keilah, duplicated in verse 2, the sequence sequence Philistines and Keilah. Verse 3, a reversal of that sequence Keilah and then Philistines, duplicated in verse 4, Keilah and Philistines. And finally, in verse 5. David and Keilah, David and Keilah again crossed at the center by Philistines. David's twofold consultation with the Lord, his duplicate consultation with the Lord in verse 2 and verse 4 is an emphatic indication of his intimacy with God. Remember, he has been in God's presence at Nob in the tabernacle, eating the bread of the presence, and he has experienced the Emmanuel presence, the God with us presence of the Lord, no less than five times previous to this chapter. Chapter 16, verse 18 Chapter 17, verse 37, chapter 18, verse 12 and 14, chapter 20, verse 13, David's character is the moral character 
of one whom the Lord God is with. He experiences the God with me presence of his Lord. Now, verse 6 inaugurates a new narrative unit. How do you know that? Speak up a little louder. You can only be wrong, and that's all right. <laughs> They're talking about somebody else. Very good, Kay. Thank you. We have a new character introduced. In fact, in verse 7, we have a second new character introduced. Now, it's not a new character to our narrative overall, but in the flow of this narrative structure, Abiathar's appearance in verse 6 and Saul's appearance in verse 7 signals a new character or two series of characters in this particular part of the drama. Are we in a new location as we shift from verse 5 to verse 6? No, we are not in a new location. We are still at Keila. How long will all of our characters remain or be at Keila? When? After he inquires and finds out that they're going to turn him over. Okay, look, look at where the narrator signals that. He's going to be at Keila until what verse? 13. Verse 13. Very good. So, once again, we have a narrative bracket. A unit, a second narrative unit that stretches from verse 6 to verse 13 and is, in fact, part of a second subunit of a larger narrative unit. We can say that verses 1 to 13 are a macro narrative unit, unit, a larger narrative, and it is composed, 1 to 13, of two smaller units, two subunits in this narrative development. Verses 1 to 5, subunit number 1, verses 6 to 13, subunit number 2, and how are those two subunits connected? How are they hooked together? By the location. By the location. Notice Keila in verse 5 and Keila in verse 6. He uses a hook word of location in order to hook together. Once again, as a seamless narrative development, he hooks together the two subunits in verse 1 to 5 and 6 to 13. Now, one other interesting literary uh, point to note here is the connection between verse 7 and verse 13. We are seeing a pattern of duplications throughout this larger unit and through the subunits within the larger unit. Notice that we have a duplication in verses 7 and 13. It was told to Saul that David... 
where Saul prepares war against David, verse 8, after he has been told. In contrast, here is our narrative, narrator's contrastive element. In contrast to Saul abandoning war against David in verse 13. The duplication is unto plot development and narrative flow. Twice, in verses 1 to 5, David had inquired of the Lord. He had needed no ephod on those occasions. Why, as Abiathar, as Abiathar appears in Keilah, why the request for the ephod? First of all, what is it? What is the ephod? It is a priestly garment. What kind of a priestly garment? What's it like? Well, it has two stones on it that represent the Israelite, the tribes of Israel. Okay. It is a white shirt. It's a white linen garment. It's a vestment. Okay? And it is worn by the high priest when he ministers his office. Now here, there may be a suggestion that in asking for the ephod, David is asking for a consultation or revelation by way of Urim and Thummim. Now, there's nothing in the text that suggests that explicitly, but the fact that he asked the ephod to be brought to him may suggest that he's asking for a special declaration of God through the high priest by means of the Urim and Thummim, whatever they are. For, in fact, they are mysterious. They are undoubtedly some kind of device by which God reveals his will directly to the priest, but precisely what kind of device they are still escapes us. There are those that regard them as some kind of precious magic Jewish dice, which were rolled and the way they turned up, you knew what was to be done. Uh, I don't favor that interpretation, but nonetheless, there are others that think that they were the stones that were worn on the breastplate of the ephod of the high priest. There are all kinds of suggestions as to what they were. But I will leave that discussion for uh, exploration of the uh, priestly garments in Exodus and so on. We're not going to get to that tonight. Let me suggest, without being dogmatic, that the use of the priestly ephod here, with or without Urim or Thummim, is connected with the reversal of the deliverance motif in this chapter. The fickle Keilahites are poised to deliver up their deliverer. We may probe their motivations later on, but disloyalty and turncoat is nothing new to the faithful servants of the Lord. The Keilahites are survivors. 
And they know the price of survival. Give up the Savior. Yes, David did us a great favor. He delivered us, even saved us from the pagan enemy. But Saul has summoned all the people for war, verse 8, and we're going to get squished. David's a nice guy, but he's not worth dying for. After all, the Philistines only took our grain from the threshing floors and harassed us. But Saul is coming to kill David and all who aid and abet David, just like he did with the priests at Nob and Ahimelech. Aha. The ghost of the slaughtered corpses at Nob haunt the memory of the Keilahites, and so they're ready to throw David over. Give him up. We will not die for a renegade fugitive, an outcast, an enemy of the king. And so our narrator portrays the character of the good citizens of Keilah as cowards, traitors, deceivers, ingrates, no integrity. No integrity as David has integrity. The contrast once again moves apace. They are just like Saul. Just like Saul to whom they intend to hand David over. One of the marks of your character is your integrity. Your steadfast and loyal integrity. The brief and final cameo of Jonathan will reveal this demonstratively, and that is why, that is why our narrator returns Jonathan to the the narrative in this 23rd chapter of betrayal. Betrayal of David by Keilah, betrayal of David by the Ziphites, Betrayal of David, even though he has shown mercy to the one and has done no evil to the other. Let not your character do evil to those who have done you good. And mark those of fickle character, fickle character, just like Keilah just like the Ziphites, mark those of fickle character who have repaid evil for your good. Mark them as untrustworthy. Notice well the reversal of verse 14. The Lord did not give. That is a better translation of the Hebrew verb here, not tan. David 
into Saul's hand. The Lord did not give David into Saul's hand. Whose hand will David be in? Contrast verse 4, where God says, I will give, Hebrew verb natan, same as the Hebrew verb in verse 14, the Philistines, I will give the Philistines into your hand. The reason is, of course, that David is in God's hand. That is emphatic in this narrative unit. The capricious character of the people of Keilah is structurally featured in the chiastic pattern of verses 10 and 11. You will notice the bracket that surrounds the center of the chiasm, the letter D, the bracket A and A prime, The frame of the chiasm is the Lord God of Israel. Precisely and exactly duplicated at the top and the bottom of the chiasm. The next element, the B element, is thy servant has heard, which is precisely duplicated at the B prime vector, thy servant has heard. The C aspect of the chiasm is the name Saul, but the name Saul plus a verb and a verb of motion. In verse 10, C prime in verse 11, the name Saul once again and followed by a verb of motion, which places the pivot or the hinge of the chiasm at the all important question. Will Keila surrender me? The hinge of the chiasm is the point at issue. Will Keila give David up into the hand of Saul? And the Lord answers David as David had asked the Lord. Will they surrender me? Notice the parallel duplication. They will surrender you, says the Lord. The reverse chiastic structure. A chiasm is a reverse literary paradigm. The reverse chiastic structure reflects the reverse situation. The reverse situation in which David now finds himself. His circumstances have been flip-flopped. They have been turned on their head. Will those whom I deliver surrender me and turn against me? And God balances the question with his declarative answer, they will surrender you. Notice that in the chiasm, A and A prime, it is the Lord God of Israel who is the bracket around David. 
surrounding the deliverer, the eschatological deliverer, the eschatological Lord God of Israel delivers his servant. God delivers David from Keilah as David had delivered Keilah from the Philistines. Or in duplicate fashion, God delivers David from the hand of Saul as God delivered the Philistines into the hand of David. Now we observe in verse 13 that David's band of outcasts has swelled from 400, chapter 22, verse 2, to 600, a number which will endure to chapter 27, verse 2, and chapter 30, verse 9. David has attracted a significant entourage, an entourage of loyal individuals oppressed by Saul, mistreated by Saul, and threatened by Saul. And as David has found his refuge in the Lord, so David's circle extends to refuge for those who come to the Lord's servant. He does not hand over his 600. For he is a loyal servant of God and servant of his loyal followers. Now to the wilderness of Ziph. You can take a look at your map again to see the geography of David's movements. And the small chiasm featuring God's not giving David over as the Keilahites sought to give David over. Verse 14, and the A element of the chiasm matched by the A prime element of the chiasm in verse 15 is the geographical location of the wilderness of Ziph. The B element in verse 14 is the phrase Saul sought, him understood. Matched by B prime in verse 15, Saul sought, him again understood. The center of the chiasm, the hinge point of the chiasm, letter C, God did not give. God did not give David into the hand of Saul or the Ziphites. The chiasm shows the bracket which enfolds David into God's protection. God did not give him over. God is no traitorous betrayer. 
God is not like the Keilahites or the Ziphites. The wilderness of Ziph is the inclusio around David who is folded into the hand of God. Now God's instrument of delivering David is the wilderness. Into the wilderness he disappears. Do you see the relationship between verse 15 and verse 16? You notice the name Horesh, which once again forms a hook word, a literary hook device to tie together two narrative subunits. We saw this previously, a geographical hook word in verses 5 and 6, the term Keilah. There the hook pattern is signaled by a new character. It does so here as well. In verses 15 and 16, we meet a new character in the narrative drama. Jonathan appears. I'm sorry, yes. New character. Yes, Jonathan has been in the story before, but in this narrative sequence, he appears for the first time. And so the narrator is signaling by the hookward pattern uh, with the appearance of Abiathar and Saul in the previous uh, dual uh, narrative units. He's doing the same thing here in parallel, only the new character which flows out of the hookward device is the appearance of Jonathan or the reappearance of Jonathan. These geographical hook words are transition links to narrative scenes in our author's dramatic story. I cannot say it more emphatically now, as I have said it emphatically before, this author is a master, an inspired literary master indeed, but the Holy Spirit has gifted this narrator with profound literary skill, and if you miss it, you aren't paying attention to what God put there. You flatten this thing down to the level of your own moralistic horizon so that you can apply something out of this narrative to your own life. You are not reading the text as it was inspired. You are making it serve you. You are to serve the God who inspired it. And to listen to the mastery of his literary and narrative storytelling skill. Because this is dramatic stuff. It is passionately dramatic stuff. It is not flat, topical, applicatory moralism. 
This is the drama of the life of God revealed in one of his servants, which is drawing you into the same passionate drama of that life. And you would sit in your passive, cold lethargy as the drama passes you by and you are left out of the story. Which is, of course, my job is not to leave you in your lethargy and to remind you that there is a powerful, dramatic magnet here. And to encourage you to think outside of your small envelope to the broad cosmic and redemptive historical drama that is being played out for you in this text so that you can be a part of a drama as well as David. It is not bare history. It is not bare doctrine. It is not bare application. It is life. It is life with all of life's drama. Now, we have extended and entered the next narrative unit, which is verses 15 to 18, which you will note is bracketed by the location Horesh, verse 15 and verse 18. The place, once again, unknown, much like the forest of Hereth in chapter 22, verse 5. But this last and final face-to-face meeting between the friend of the Lord's anointed and the Messiah himself leaves us with a poignancy which touches even our remote hearts. Once again, in character, the friend of him that must increase is content. He is content to decrease, confessing that his anointed friend is the true king of Israel. Such marvelous humiliation and resignation as Jonathan endorses the Lord's own election, endorses God's choice, God's anointing, God's elevation of the shepherd king of the flock of the Lord. Jonathan's humiliation and celebration of an undeserved covenant bond with his friend 
his king, his Messiah, a farewell covenant pledge between Jonathan and David leaves our hearts dramatically touched. And having sealed his friend, his king, his Messiah, with the renewal of the covenant, king and servant subject part, nevermore to see one another in this life. Well, might David say to his Old Testament John the Baptist figure, well, might David say here, as he says elsewhere, he shall not come to me, but I shall go to him. And now verse 19. And more duplication. The duplication once more of feckless treachery. The Ziphites, a mirror of the Keilahites. Verse 19 is replete with more geographical mystery. Horesh, we've already noted, is as yet unidentified. So to Hakila. Yeshimon is not a place name, as some of your margins may note. It is a Hebrew word for desert or wilderness wasteland. And the word strongholds here, the word strongholds is in the Hebrew masadoth, masada, and may conjure up images of the famous hilltop fortress in which the Jews held off the mighty Roman legions from 66 to 73 A.D. during a revolt in which Jerusalem was razed to the ground by Titus in 70 A.D., that Masada, south of Engedi, note verse 29, that Masada on the west side of the Dead Sea. Your map translates the strongholds as Masada, literally rendering the Hebrew term and bringing back the story, the dramatic story of that band of zealots who starved themselves to death and may have committed suicide on top of that mountain fortress in 73 AD rather than be captured by the Roman legions. Whether or not they committed suicide is still debated. Were the first century Jews holding out in a region in which David himself once held out? Masada, stronghold, brackets, the last narrative unit, you will notice that the word appears in verse 19, And it appears once again in verse 29. Is verse 19 associated with any other passage in the Bible? 
Keep your finger in 1 Samuel 23 and turn with me to Psalm 54. I direct your attention to the title, which is above the first verse of Psalm 54. And I want you to notice the phrase, Ziphites came to Saul in that title, and the phrase, is not David hiding among us? Those two phrases are found in verse 19 of 1 Samuel 23. Psalm 54 is David's poetic commentary on the state of his soul, the song of his soul in the face of Ziphite treachery. Save me, O God, he pleads. Hear my prayer, for violent men have sought my life. Why this treachery? I think we may venture that the Ziphites, like the Keilahites, want no repeat of Nob from paranoid Saul. Better to deliver up one lone renegade than have a whole population slaughtered. Indeed, strangers have risen against me, as David declares in Psalm 54, verse 3, but God is my helper, Psalm 54, verse 4. Now verse 24, and a scene shift. Notice your map. God's help directs David to the wilderness of Maon. And in the wilderness of Maon, a cat and mouse game. A cat and mouse game of contrast between pursuer and pursued. The one Staying one step ahead of the other. One step ahead until the contrast is on the brink of collapse in verse 26. David and Saul, opposites, are on opposite sides of a mountain. But Saul is closing in, reducing the gap that divides the quarry from the hunter. God answers David's prayer in Psalm 54, verse 1. Save me, O God, answers David's prayer by distracting and diverting. Distracting and diverting Saul from the hunt. The Philistines have raided the land, verse 27. Oh, the delicious irony of God's providence. Saul, who had stirred nary a muscle at the beginning of this chapter when the Philistine incursion plundered Keilah, is bestirred to fly to the defense of his people against yet another Philistine invasion. And David, who spared a city from Philistines, finds the Philistines sparing him. Oh, the delicious irony. 
and you think this man is not a great writer, please do not patronize him with such absurdity. This is brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. You wish you could write like this. I wish I could preach like this. This is magnificent. We leave David at Engedi, oasis village on the west side of the Dead Sea, verse 29. Here, perhaps drinking from the impressive fresh water spring and shaded by the desert palm trees, David takes his rest, nestled in the rocky crags and caverns by the hand, the all-saving, all-delivering hand of the Lord. And the eschatological David, he is the hand of the Lord. In whose all-encompassing hand are enfolded his own possession, his covenant servants, his sheep, his lambs. It is this hand unseen, yet wonderfully, graciously present, it is the hand of God the Son that doubly encloses the protological David. And every fickle treachery is fended off by the twofold hand of the Son of the Father. Every crass betrayal, every murderous impulse, every perfidious plot, Every reversal is borne by the one who is the object of crass betrayal, the focus of murderous impulses, the victim of a cosmic plot. The one enclosed by another hand, a hand as strong as his own powerful hand, the hand of his heavenly Father, folded around him as his own hand is folded around his servants to shield and to protect them from the enemy. No one, says this one, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Father's hand, my Father's hand, which is folded around my hand. Our narrator leaves us with the motif of the hands, the contrast between the hands of salvation and the hands of destruction. Does he see? what we now see. Now in the fullness of time does he see 
those antithetical hands intersecting in a figure, nailed and bloodied on a hill outside the city of David. The deliverer delivered up by the hand of God. The rescuer abandoned by the hand of God. The hunted and snared by the hand of God. Does our narrator foresee that God's hand will be turned against the eschatological David, handing him over to the kingdom of death, and we together with him, in order that a doubly omnipotent hand may carry us with that one on the day when death's hand is unclenched. And the hand of God the Father and the hand of God the Son will raise up the Israel of God from the dead. The hand that delivered the protological David is in these last days revealed to be the saving and protecting twice over hand. Twice over securing hand. Twice over hand because of, for the sake of, on account of the eschatological David. All right, now we're on to chapter 24. And when I ask the question, how does chapter 24 open, I'm obviously asking a literary question, and you should be beginning to follow the clues or recognize the keys. What do we have here? We have a new section. We have a new section. What's its relationship to the previous section, and how do you know? There is a hook word. What is it, Margaret? And get I. Yes, and get I. I'll use the Hebrew pronunciation. It's a long I. And get I. Where we left David in chapter 23, we now begin with David in chapter 24. This very lovely oasis community on the hot, dry west bank of the Dead Sea. And you can see how lovely it is from the handouts that I have given you. Uh, There is a fresh water waterfall. In fact, there are several of them there that feed uh, streams of fresh water, pools of fresh water in Engedi and and Gedi, and around the uh, perimeter of the rocky crags that rise above the oasis. It's actually now an official Israeli kibbutz. there are these caves, uh, which again is a feature of this uh, particular chapter. <clears throat> so you can 
you can get a little glimpse at what and get eye looks like um, even today and there is one other feature that I'll mention uh, later on they even bottle that water that you see and it's just like uh, crystal geyser or whatever else it's sold in Jerusalem at a premium <laughs> all right <clears throat> little bit of entrepreneurial Oasis business. All right, Saul's spies, his seemingly all-present spies, report David at rest in the rocky strongholds, the Masada strongholds in the wilderness of Engedi. We discover yet another link between chapter 23 and chapter 24, the network of spies Saul has commissioned at Gibeah in chapter 23, verse 23, has done its work and reports to Saul on his return from engaging the Philistines in chapter 24, verse 1. In other words, they report to Saul in his Home at Gabeah. Now, the scene of our opening narrative unit is the wilderness of Engedi, which Saul approaches with 3,000 chosen or hand picked men. The pick of his army, fresh from the taste of blood against the Philistines, quick to the chase in pursuit of David. We don't even hear the outcome of the encounter with the Philistines. As if Saul has a one-track mind. David, David, David. The Philistines may distract me, but I am obsessed. Obsessed, possessed, demon-like. Fixated on David and his death. Our narrator understands what drives Saul, and so he leaves out the climax of the encounter with the Philistines. He cuts to the chase. Our narrator, sets this, our narrator sets the stage of our drama with the players, the location, even the specific posture, the posture of the antagonist in the wilderness of Engedi. Saul and his 3,000 Stand before the rocks of the wild goats. Now you have him in your handout the picture of the Palestinian ibex or the wild goat of Palestine, which is what frequented these rocky crags on the west bank of the Dead Sea in the days of David and before and still does, as you can see from that photo. Now, there may be some wild ibexes in this region today, but the photo that you see is from a wildlife preserve. There is a fenced-in preserve for the ibexes at the kibbutz in Gedi today, 
and they are being preserved and uh, uh, carefully cared for in order to extend the species. Our narrator graphically paints an image for us. The wild goats of the rocks frequent and get I. And get I, which means in Hebrew, the fountain of the wild goat. From the regional location to the imaginative and picturesque location, our narrator brings his camera to the specific locus of his drama, a cave in the wilderness of Engedi, contiguous to the rocks of the wild goats. He paints a very attractive and dramatic picture for us, and your photos help you imagine it. The narrative proceeds by way of ingress and egress. Verse 3, Saul went into the cave. Verse 7, Saul left or went out of the cave. The incident at the cave is set up by location and action on location. Thus, the first narrative unit of chapter 24 extends from verse 1 to verse 7. Verse 8 does not change location. There's no scene shift here, but inaugurates a dialogic exchange between David and Saul. David will initiate the conversation in verse 8 with the longest continuous speech of David anywhere in the Bible, the Psalms and 2 Samuel 7, 18 to 29 accepted. The longest continuous speech of David anywhere in the Bible is here in 1 Samuel 24, the Psalms and 2 Samuel accepted. Our narrator features a lengthy comment by David because it is crucial to our narrator's long-developing portrait of David. David is not featured here by our narrator as long-winded, but as rhetorically poignant. This speech tugs at the heart. It obviously did so to even the implacable Saul. The speech reaches to verse 15 and the end of our second narrative unit in this chapter, verses 8 to 15. Verse 16 contains the beginning of Saul's reply to David's lengthy speech, and Saul will continue speaking through verse 21. Thus, our third narrative unit spans verses 16 to 21, which makes verse 22... A return to the beginning. Note, Saul goes to his home in verse 22. And where is his home? Gabeah. Presumably Saul returns to his home in verse 1 of this chapter, in Gabeah. The chapter comes full circle for Saul. And David 
he repairs to the strongholds of Engedi, where he had taken refuge at the end of chapter 23, verse 29. David, too, has come full circle at the end of chapter 24. Well, then, if our narrator is taking us round in circles with our two principal dramatic players, where is the advance? Where is the progress? Where is the development in his tale? Let's begin with a question about Lightverter again. Is there one? Voila encore. What is it? La main, mesdames et messieurs. The hand. The hand. This chapter is polluted with the term hand. Verse 4. Verse 6. Verse 10, two times. Verse 11, two times. Verse 12. Verse 13. Verse 15. Verse 18. Verse 20. The word hand appears 11 times in 22 verses. Is there a light verter in this chapter? You betcha. Deja vu, chapter 23's light verter returns in chapter 24, but with a difference. With a difference. It is David's hand. Saul in David's hand in each of the 11 instances of the term hand here except for verse 15. The narrative spiral, the upwardly spiraling narrative of David places Saul in his hand. The royal hand in the unfolding narrative of David's story in chapter 24, the royal hand is David's hand. That's the progress and development that our narrator is featuring. A hand of mercy, a hand of deliverance, a hand of good for evil, a hand of royal beneficence, a hand of kindness even to his enemy. The transition of royal dignity and bearing is displayed more and more by David as our narrator displays more and more of the story of David. Saul enters the cave to go to sleep, to cover his feet with his robe and sleep in the dark cool of the cavern. I am departing from the contemporary translation of the Hebrew phrase to cover his feet, which appears as an idiom or a euphemism in your modern versions. I am doing this for reasons of the narrative drama. First, David spares Saul once again 
in 1 Samuel chapter 26. In that story, verse 7 of chapter 26, Saul is described as sleeping. When David quietly lifts his spear and his water jug. On the principle of narrative duplication, on the Semitic principle of symmetrical duplication, I am suggesting the same scenario here in chapter 24. Saul is sleeping. Second, the idiomatic or euphemistic construction fails with the stealth and slicing away a part of Saul's robe in verse 4. Such an act on David's part is virtually inconceivable on the idiomatic construction. Third, Saul's response to David's act strongly suggests that Saul was not conscious while the act was in process. That is, it suggests that he was sound asleep, unaware of what was going on around him. And fourth, the only other place in the Old Testament where this Hebrew phrase, to cover his feet, occurs is the Ehud narrative in Judges 3.24. There, once again, Ehud asleep is more consistent with the stealth and suspense of the narrative than the modern idiomatic or euphemistic rendering of this phrase. Be that as it may, David does slice off a corner of Saul's robe, and immediately, verse 5, he was stricken at heart. Now, the translation, his conscience bothered him, grasps the gist of the reaction. But the Hebrew idiom is more piercing. Having touched the robe of the Lord's anointed, David realized he had ventured close to raising his hand against the Lord's anointed, all of which underscores David's constant repetition of his hand against Saul in his lengthy speech. His companions, in verse 4, suggest that he kill Saul. They argue the moral equivalence. The moral equivalence of Saul wishes to kill you, now you have the opportunity to kill Saul. And in cutting Saul's robe, David senses he has taken a tiny step in the direction of their quid pro quo ethical principle. Get even, they say. And David takes a slice out of his nemesis's robe, but then Herzschmerz. Oh, what a great German word for pain in the heart. Why? Why is David stricken? with pangs of conscience. 
He sees what is potentially present in himself. That he is capable of more than cutting off Saul's robe. He is capable of being mirrored in this small act, darkly mirrored in this act, capable of doing what his colleagues suggest he do, do, and he recoils. Recoils in that he realizes I could have killed him as he lay there. Pang of self-realization. I could have done what my comrades egged me on to do. Double pang of self-realization. I would have done to Saul what Saul seeks to do to me. I would have become Saul. Triple pang. Notice verse 10. Some said to kill you, but, but I had pity on you. Defenseless, unsuspecting, sleeping like a baby, Saul, I took pity on you. Indeed, I would not act so wickedly against you. David is here revealing something of the inner character of his heart. His inner motivation in sparing Saul. In fact, some of his inner motivation for fleeing, fleeing continually from Saul. Notice the act of sparing Saul here is exegetical. That is, it speaks volumes of what drives David's inner motives. He does not kill Saul with this act, and this act explains, adds an exegesis of David's inner heart in fleeing and escaping from Saul. The ethical or moral character of David is displayed by this act here in chapter 24 and permits us to see into the depths of his heart, the depths of what moves him when this act is not before us. When he flees from Saul at Jonathan's behest, at Michael's contrivance, at Samuel's spirit-filled school of prophets, at Ahimelech's sanctuary, in the wilderness of Maon and and Gedi. When David flees from Saul, it is not out of mere self-preservation. It is that, but not only that. Self-preservation is a virtue. Christ commands you to love yourself as you love your neighbor, which means minimally mutual self-preservation. Christ is not commanding love of self as runaway narcissism. God forbid. 
But he is mandating that we preserve our life and that we preserve the life of our neighbor. So David flees from Saul because he wants to preserve Saul's life. He avoids, runs from, distances himself from any confrontation where he will be compelled for the sake of his own self-preservation, compelled to take Saul's life in self-defense. Hide from Saul. Keep Saul at a distance so that I will not be forced to defend my own life by threatening the life of the Lord's anointed. There is more here than mere self-preservation. David on the run to avoid murder, even in self-defense. This pang of conscience is a window deep into the inner motives and character of David. And in stretching out his hand, David sees the potential, the potential of his own inherent depravity. He sees it and shudders and recoils with a stricken conscience. This heart, stricken and smitten, is as the heart of God. Yet it is not sinless as God's heart is. As we will see when David's heart does not strike him with pangs of conscience on the day that he lays his hand on the life of Uriah the Hittite. Tragedy, depraved and tragic duplicity will one day bring David down, down to the level of Saul. The sinfulness of this protological David compels us, compels us to look for the better David, the sinless David the eschatological David who bears our sin and David's. The conclusion of David's long speech contains two brief proverbs, one in verse 13 and the other in verse 14. These proverbial remarks are framed. They are framed, you will notice, by a benedictory clause that reaches all the way back to the era of the patriarchs. Genesis 31, 49, the Lord between me and you, Laban to his nephew Jacob. David's bracketed or duplicated appeal for the Lord to be between himself and Saul is an appeal for vindication, an appeal for righteous judgment that God in between will declare David's integrity, 
is integrity of heart, integrity of motive, integrity of character. This is not boasting as this language reappears in the Psalter. This is a plea for divine confirmation that he has not sought Saul's life, though Saul has been setting ambushes and commissioning spies to take David's life, verse 11. There is no braggadocio here. This is simply pleading for the integrity of the truth of the situation. And that God will vindicate the righteous intent of his own heart. Not sinless intent, but the right oriented intent. Moral uprightness is prominent in this first proverb in verse 13. Wickedness comes from the wicked. Straightforward. When a wicked act occurs, it comes from a wicked person. This principle should be fundamental to anyone reading the Bible. The Son of God himself lays it down empirically. Out of the heart come murders, fornications, adulteries, slanders, All these evils proceed from within. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. Which is to say, as Jesus observes, that you see fornications and they come from a fornicating heart. You see adulteries and they come from a heart that delights in adultery. You see murders, and you see a heart that takes pleasure in murdering another human being. What wickedness is evident empirically on the outside comes from a wicked disposition on the inside. Connect the dots. Murderers like to murder. It started in their hearts. Adulterers and fornicators like to steal sexual pleasure from those to whom they are not married because they like illicit sexual pleasures. It starts in their scheming and designing hearts. Sinners like sin. They enjoy it. They take pleasure in it. It gives them the jollies, even murder, fornication, and adultery. Do not deceive yourselves that the pleasures of sin for a season aren't ecstatic. The power of sin is the power of the pleasure that delights the flesh And it is a bondage, and yet it drives sinful disposition. Jesus connects the dots for you. David lays the principle down for you. 
This isn't invented by David. It is an old, ancient proverb, as most proverbs are simply matters of common sense observation. If our contemporary culture has lost the ability to connect the dots, it is because our contemporary culture is so far removed from the ethic and observation of Jesus, the Son of God, as well as the ancient common sense proverb that David cites here, that they have crucified the dots and defined all wickedness as victimology. Oh, it was because I was deprived. It was because I didn't have enough welfare. It was because the government didn't give me enough tax relief or surplus or bailout money. That's the reason I'm wicked. Even American corporations singing this tune as if somehow private industry is any more sinless than corrupt government. Let alone corrupt individuals on your news or on your internet news services or however you get your news these days and read the endless catalog of evil, wicked, and depraved actions that are broadcast in our culture, even to attraction particularly in the sports world. We make heroes out of these moral thugs. And we'll pay $40 a seat to sit and watch them. Not only we would never miss a Sunday Super Bowl game, even though most of them may have a criminal track record and a police blotter. And we think they're great heroes. You make idols out of sinners, and sin is going to be your idol. Out of the wicked comes wickedness. Connect the dots. David protests he is not wicked at heart, and hence Wicked, murderous thoughts and acts do not come forth from him. The proverb is contrastive. Once again, our narrator's contrastive motif. If wicked thoughts came from my heart, Saul, you would be dead. Stone, cold, dead. I declare the integrity of my heart by the actions of my body. No wicked act of murder, no wicked heart of murder. Though I, Denison, will add the caveat, David saw what his heart was capable of in that moment of Herzschmerz. Now, many of us, 
have seen what our darkly wicked hearts are capable of and shuddered in horror. You need to praise God for those experiences because they are the pangs of conscience that hold you back, restrain you from all the evil that you are naturally capable of outside of the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. The second proverb in verse 14 contains a poetic intensification. Were you pursuing a dead dog, worthless and contemptible, and an even more worthless and contemptible object, a single flea? What a waste of your royal time, Saul, hunting for me like a single flea on a dead dog. You even catch the humor of it. And who says there are no humorous allusions in the Bible? There was a famous Reformed theologian years ago who said that Jesus never smiled and there wasn't any humor in the Bible. I'm afraid that that man probably was very drab. (laughs) I have a few classic movies that he needs to see particularly What's Up, Doc, which is a rollicking Keystone Cops takeoff, even though Bogdanovich did it and Barbara Streisand is in it. But if you've never seen it, take a look. You will be rolling on the floor. Well, side recommendations for Great classic movies. Not this modern trash, but great classic movies. Saul himself is compelled, he is forced by the evidential testimony to admit that the empirical data David has produced is demonstrative proof of his integrity. I concur, says Saul. The evidence is overwhelming. You have done good. You have acted righteously, more righteously than I. And Saul concurs, concurs in God's electing designation of David. God's electing designation of David as king of Israel. Aha. As the evil spirit departed from Saul... And the Holy Spirit compelled him to confess the truth. Has it? I think not. He simply acknowledges in a moment of mental lucidity what he has heard and what has been repeatedly declared about David by others, including his son. Out of his own mouth, Saul condemns himself while he pleads for clemency for the survivors of his dynasty. Pitiful Saul, incorrigibly determined to destroy David, is compelled to prophesy once more 
I know that you shall surely be king. And our narrator records the self-condemnation of reprobate Saul. David's upward spiral continues upward. Even his predecessor has recognized the legitimacy of his succession. God vindicates David's integrity. God confirms David's future. God condemns the wicked heart out of its own mouth. No modern liberals. No, you are dead wrong. There is nothing heroic about Saul. Nothing heroic whatsoever. He is wicked out of whom comes forth wickedness. You see, David's proverb has a barb in it. The irony, the truthful irony is that the proverb fits Saul, not David. We close chapter 24 with lines from Psalm 57, the title of which suggests a poetic peon from a cave when David fled from Saul. The cave of Engedi? Perhaps. Perhaps. Be gracious to me, O God, for my soul takes refuge in thee. In the shadow of thy wings I will take refuge. They have spread a net for my steps. They have dug a pit before me. Yet... I will sing praises to thee, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is exalted above the heavens, O God. The heart of David drawn above the heavens to the footstool of his very own counterpart, to the feet of of the Son of God, the eschatological David. Chapter 25 and 26 next week, Lord willing. Do you have any questions or comments about any of our study this evening? Then I wish you bonsoir.